0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call.
1: is a phytochemical. It's a, a chemical derived from a plant, and it's actually the plant is apple trees, the bark of apple trees.
0: This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled, Sodium Glucose Cotransporter 2 Inhibitors, Lack of a Complete History Delays Diagnosis. This article appeared September 17, 2019. We also discuss an accompanying editorial titled, Amnesia, Adverse Effects, and the Angel of History in the same issue. Joining us today is the first author of the article, Dr. Bruce Leslie. Dr. Leslie has a very interesting background related to this subject. He's a board-certified internist and nephrologist and a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He's the founder of Seventh Doctor Consulting, an independent biomedical consultancy in Princeton, New Jersey. He has worked at several major pharmaceutical companies, and he was instrumental in the clinical development and post-marketing safety monitoring of three SGLT2 inhibitor medications currently marketed in the United States. I believe you'll find this story most enlightening and worthwhile in terms of understanding the ketoacidosis associated with SGLT2 inhibitors. Thank you for listening. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. I was fascinated by your article about the errors made in the historical inquiry of ketoacidosis secondary to SGLT2s, and let's just start on May 15th, 2015, when the FDA comes out with a warning about ketoacidosis. How long had we been using SGLT2s in the United States?
1: Well, the first SGLT2 inhibitor to gain marketing approval in the United States was canagliflozin, and the FDA granted approval on March 29th, 2013. So that's when it began The first adverse event report that was filed with the FDA adverse event reporting system or FAERS was less than six weeks later on May 8th, 2013.
0: And and yet it took two years for them to finally issue a warning about the ketoacidosis. How many cases had they accumulated by then?
1: Well, there are more than 150, by my count, cases in which the reporter, who's usually a physician, but it can be a pharmacist uh, or the patient, him or herself, there are more than 150 cases that were reported as either diabetic ketoacidosis, ketoacidosis, metabolic acidosis. So there were quite a number of cases. The FDA issued its initial warning on May 15, 2015, based on a review of only 20 cases that had been reported through the end of 2014. These were cases with full information that was obtainable by the
0: agency, but there were many more reports. As I read your wonderfully put together story, you call this a cautionary tale, and I believe you say something like this, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, a historical inquiry should have raised red flags about this drug, or this class of drugs. So why don't we go through some of that, because it's such an interesting story, and so I'm going to let you tell us about florazin, and just go through what we know about florazin from the past, its role in causing ketoacidosis, its role in in the development of SGLT2s, et cetera?
1: Sure. Well, as you noted, all the currently marketed SGLT2 inhibitors in the United States are based on the molecular structure of a compound called fluorazine. They're all closely related to florazin. Florazin is a phytochemical. It's a, a chemical derived from a plant. And it's actually, the plant is apple trees, the bark of apple trees. And the discovery is interesting. It turns out to be related to infectious disease because in the 19th century, malaria was endemic in Western Europe. And investigators and scientists there were looking for uh, drugs to treat malarial fever. They had found, of course, quinine from cinchona trees and then salicin from willow trees. And some investigators in Belgium, Laurent Deconic and Jean Stas, got a load of apple tree roots and found another chemical, fluorazin, which was an antipyretic. And a German investigator, some years later, by the name of Joseph von Mering, who's that's a famous name in diabetes research, but that's another story. Anyway, Joseph von Mering, while investigating the antipyretic properties of fluorosin, made the observation that it induced glucosuria, and he called this phenomenon fluorosin diabetes. He made several presentations to the German Congress for Internal Medicine about florism. And in one of his presentations in 1886, at the end of the presentation, he made this tantalizing observation that when he administered florism to experimental animals, dogs, he saw abundant excretion of acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate and ammonium, just as in patients in diabetic coma or diabetic ketoacidosis. And a couple of years later, he published these results more extensively. And it's really fascinating to read them. And in the article, I provide links to this article. It's in German. But anyway, if you have the ability to read it, it's fascinating. He took dogs and put them on low-carbohydrate diets or starved them for a couple of days and then administered floresin and made them very sick, lethargic, comatose. Some of them died. And subsequently, this research was repeated and replicated and advanced all over the world including in the United States, in the English-speaking world, where the earliest extensive investigations were done at the Rockefeller Institute in New York by a man named Frederick Allen, a very interesting fellow who was famous in the days before insulin for treating type 1 diabetics with starvation diets. One of his patients actually was named Elizabeth Hughes, who was the daughter of the famous jurist Charles Evans Hughes. But at any rate, Allen was interested in floresin as a kind of model of starvation, starvation because of the negative glucose balance that it could produce. And he extended the observations of von Mering by showing that in experimental animals, floresin could produce hyperketonemia, increases in blood ketone levels, depression of the serum bicarbonate concentration, in a sense, or not in a sense, but actually produce ketoacidosis. So that's the fluorescent story in a nutshell. And after Allen's work in 1923, fluorescent research just blossomed in the United States. There was a lot of research on fluoresin. Many different kinds of experimental animals could be made ketotic and ketoacidotic with fluoresin. Interestingly, as mentioned in my article, the dairy industry in the United States used fluoresin to induce ketosis in dairy cows and sheep. Because this industry has a problem when these animals have a demand for glucose. When they're making milk, they have a tremendous glucose demand. And you can replicate this physiology by giving them fluorism. And so they produced ketosis in steers and sheep with fluorism to study this condition. So my point is that the literature on fluorism was extensive, but it was old and had to be found.
0: So that's interesting. And one of the things that I notice in here is, and maybe you could say something about hepatic glycogen stores.
1: Right. Well, this was all an observation that was made by Arthur Mirsky, who was a well-known diabetologist in the 1940s in the United States, that he made the observation that floresin was particularly good at inducing ketosis and ketoacidosis when hepatic glycogen stores were depleted. And probably the biochemistry of this involves the availability of acetyl-CoA, which is a precursor of keto acids. This becomes more available for ketoacid synthesis when glycogen stores are depleted and the liver has shifted to gluconeogenesis. It's complex biochemistry, but that's my understanding of it. So that when uh, glycogen stores are depleted, it's one of the factors by which SGLT2 inhibition promotes ketogenesis.
0: Well, the next thing that you write about, which I have to admit, I did not remember there was this syndrome, but there's a familial renal glycosuria, which is a mutation in the SGLT2 gene that I guess is like giving an SGLT2.
1: That's correct. This is an old, it's not even a disease. I hesitate to use the word disease. It's a condition in which there are mutations in the SGLT2 transporter, which make it either less effective or ineffective in glucose reabsorption. So these are usually children who are picked up as having glucosuria without hyperglycemia. And it's generally benign. It's, uh, as I said, it's regarded as a non-disease, except when these people are depressed. Deprived of carbohydrate intake when they're they go into a hospital for surgery and they're made npo for a long period of time or when they are put on low carbohydrate diets in the beginning, when this condition was recognized, sometimes it was confused as diabetes mellitus, and so patients were put on low-carbohydrate diets, and they got sick. They became lethargic, dyspneic, you know, probably from the accumulation of keto acids. So yes, so the SGLT two inhibition is modeled by this experiment of nature: familial renal glucosuria. So we
0: have the floresin story, and we have the Renoglycosurus story, and both of these are not very current publications. And then you have a section where you talk about how the lack of knowing the history led to the delay in recognizing the role of SGLT2s in ketoacidosis. And there's one study I'd like you just to comment on. Uh, there was a study of 380 patients randomly sized to receive canagliflozin, and it was either 100 or 200 milligrams per day. And they actually did measure total ketone bodies. And as you write in here, 22 of them had very significant levels of ketone bodies and six of those 22 had extraordinarily high. And yet this was sort of not noted by the manufacturer in these preclinical and phase two clinical trials. Right. Actually, you raised two points. One is about the paper itself.
1: And so it was a phase two study of canagliflozin that was done in Japan. Japanese investigators, for whatever reason, were more tuned in to the ketogenic potential of SGLT2 inhibitors. And a lot of the preclinical and clinical, early clinical work on SGLT2 inhibitors includes measurements of serum ketones when this research was done in Japan. And as you said, in this study of 380, patients with type 2 diabetes, given canagliflozin, the total ketone bodies rose to more than three millimoles per liter in 22 patients and more than five millimoles per liter in six patients. The criterion standard for diagnosing ketoacidosis is a ketone level, a plasma ketone level equal to or greater than three millimoles per liter. So these people hit the criterion. And as you mentioned, the investigators, you know, the rise was transient. They said there was no identifiable cause and didn't particularly seem alone. At least that's my inference. You know, when I read the paper, you did mention, you know, at the start of this question that the papers that describe as florizin and florizin ketosis and ketoacidosis are, as you said, not very current. That's true, but they're not hard to find. That was also a point in my article. They may be hard to find on PubMed, but. You have to dig a little deeper than PubMed, which can be done. And in the article are links to many of
0: these articles. They're publicly available, so they can be found. The wonderful editorial that accompanies this article that gives you a lot of praise, by the way, makes that point and gives another example of a fatality that occurred with a different drug because people had not gone back past, I think it's 1963 is where we have complete data when you just search PubMed.
1: That's correct. And this editorial was written by Jeremy Green, who's a professor of medical history. He's a physician at Johns Hopkins. And he made this point that MedLars, which is the antecedent of PubMed, began its full compilation in 1963. And he describes this incident involving hexamethonium, inhaled hexamethonium during some research on a pulmonary function. And a normal volunteer died as a consequence of this inhalation. Apparently, it was described in this phenomenon of toxicity from hexamethonium was described in the 1950s, but it was not available to the researcher who performed the study who did only a PubMed search.
0: So the other interesting thing that you point out is that in Japan, the warning was put out there in 2013, two years before it was in the United States. And as you recently said in our conversation, the Japanese were a bit more aware of, I guess, the history or the predisposition towards ketoacidosis. Well, I
1: don't really know if they were. I mean, I sort of presume that or surmise that It's something that I would like to look into. I mean, why they were more tuned into it than American or European regulators. But you're right. I mean, they, as the article points out, they made manufacturers put a warning or put warnings about this possibility in labels for these drugs in Japan. At least that's my understanding as
0: early as 2013. So for the listeners who've never seen uh, this phenomenon, you mentioned that there are now a number of epidemiological studies suggesting that maybe an incidence of about 1.6 per thousand patient years in new users. Do you think that's a pretty good number? This is not a common side effect, but it's one that we all need to know.
1: Well, that's correct. The issue of the incidence of this phenomenon is really not fully understood. The incidence was quite low in the clinical trials. In the clinical trials of canagliflozin, the incidence was uh, less than one per 1,000 patient years. It was between 0.5 and about 0.8. But in the real world, in population-based studies, the incidence has been higher. We quoted the figure you mentioned in the article, there have been some other publications which we didn't include for want of uh, space, but one of the really interesting ones is from the New England Journal, a research letter that was published in 2017, in which they looked at patients who were started on SGLT2 inhibitors in that interval between the approval, the first approval, and the FDA warning. This was based on insurance claims an insurance database And the incidence was as high as five or actually 4.9, but let's say five cases per 1,000 patient years. So an order of magnitude higher than in the uh, in clinical trials. So every time I've heard presentations about this phenomenon in medical meetings, uh, the presenter always says it's rare or very rare. And that should not be taken by listeners as meaning that they'll never see a case in their lifetime. That's not the reality. I've spoken to many physicians who've seen a case or have heard about a case in their hospitals. It's something that physicians ought to be thinking
0: about and uh, have a high index of suspicion for. Certainly. It turns out that I teach acid-base to our students and residents in a case presentation format once a month, and I always mention it. And so I'm going to ask you to speculate. Given the historical data and given the recent studies suggesting that SGLT2 inhibitors help heart failure patients even if they don't have diabetes, do you think that given the mechanisms that history tells us, there's a chance that even though they don't have diabetes, they could end up with ketoacidosis?
1: Well, so far, all the cases of ketoacidosis from SGLT2 inhibitors have been reported in patients with diabetes. The DAPA heart failure study, which is the only publication that I'm aware of that extends the use of these drugs into non-diabetics, did report cases of ketoacidosis, but they were only in diabetics in that study, as I understand them. But now I will speculate that Under certain conditions, you know, I think it's possible for non-diabetic people who are taking SGLT2 inhibitors to develop ketoacidosis. And the conditions that I'm particularly thinking about are low-carbohydrate diets, which are becoming very fashionable, and as is starvation, intermittent fasting, which is also becoming fashionable for weight loss. You know, harking back to the work of Von Mering and Frederick Allen and Arthur Mirsky, They produced ketoacidosis with floresin in in animals who were starved or were put on low-carbohydrate diets, and these were non-diabetic animals. So I think non-diabetic humans who engage in these dietary practices, seeking a benefit, who are also taking SGLT2 inhibitors, could be pushed into ketoacidosis. Again, that's just speculation,
0: but I think it's possible. Finally, this article was published as we're speaking about three months ago. Have you gotten any feedback from the FDA or from manufacturers about the importance of this article? Is it being listened to?
1: Well, I certainly haven't heard from the FDA, and I haven't heard from manufacturers either. I don't know the extent of the dissemination. The annals... um, When you're an author in the annals, they give you some feedback in terms of Twitter, you know, how often the article is being tweeted. And it's, as I understand the latest metric, it's in the top 25% of tweeted articles. So uh, I think it is being seen. And the Twitter comments have been quite favorable. It's being seen. But one investigator writing about this topic said that this phenomenon has been under-recognized and under-reported. So I think the message still needs to get out there.
0: Well, hopefully uh, this podcast will add to your uh, Twitter numbers uh, (laughs) and more importantly, add to uh, a widespread recognition of the history as well as the pathophysiology of ketoacidosis with SGLT2s. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been just an illuminating conversation. Thank you very much, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. We stressed in this conversation the importance of recognizing ketoacidosis in patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors. Dr. Leslie provided a careful history lesson of how this phenomenon could have been potentially predicted. And if it had been predicted, we might have avoided a two-year lapse between the approval of the first SGLT2 and the warnings for ketoacidosis. The editorial talks about this, not just for this drug, but for other drugs. This is an important lesson for us to learn about new drugs and the possibility of complications. Thank you for listening to Annals on Call. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.